the Luminaries with David Odyssey. This time, the astrology of the one and only Nora Ephron, with special guest Sam Staller. But first, thoughts on Azalea Banks' Saturn return, the astrology of the last days of disco, and believe it or not, the Old Testament antecedents for our current Senate. Thanks for listening. See you on the other side. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you heard it here, probably second or third. Uh, Azalea Banks's uh, Jewish wedding has been called off, or maybe it was never on, or maybe we're all part of some sick joke. However, she maintains that she does want to remain, uh, quote, juicy. And um, I just want to say, I will be your rabbi. Like, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. And I I can't say that an Azalea renaissance is upon us because I don't think Azalea will ever feed into the American woman in music comeback narrative that it would ho- that we would be foisting upon her. I think she's beyond that. So we may never get that moment, but she seems to be doing great. Um and I have to say, you know, having her <laughs> Listen, I assume Irish or Italian people have this. When you grow up Jewish, anyone who's Jewish or supports Israel, they could literally be famous for being a serial killer. My mother will be thrilled, okay? They can be, you know, if if the Ataturk uh, decides that he he's pro-Israel, he's good for us. I am unfortunately feeling that way with Azalea. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have her. Um, And uh, listen, when Lady Gaga's dog, what happened with her dog walker? Did 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 they them get kidnapped? What is it? Okay, well, this is what Azalea wrote. Um, Doesn't Lady Gaga know her trans fans need money for sex change surgery? If she got 500k to spend on dogs and won't give back to the people who helped her get rich, I think it's transphobic. Dogs are women too. Um, God, she's fantastic. Uh, was it? Yeah, dogs are women too. Um, yeah. Uh, that's nothing. I will offer 750k for Lady Gaga's dogs. Bring me the dogs. Um, sh- anyways, uh, I love her. I celebrate her. I support her. And um, I I just want more. I, I really would love an album. Um, okay. I am in a great mood because I just watched something that I hate. Uh, Derek Del Blasio, what's his name? Derek Del Guadio's in and of itself on Hulu. Um, it is a magic show that I probably listed for time out. Um, or I probably at least repopulated the listing. It's like a magic show, whatever on Hulu that people are talking about. Um, I found it to be uh, deeply punishing. Um, I was having Landmark Forum flashbacks the whole time. If you haven't done Landmark Forum, you would probably love it, which is a magic show where strangers get called on stage to have emotional revelations. Um, I thought it was really like 
unethical. I can't believe Frank Oz directed that. I'm like, Frank Oz, how do you go from Willow to that? And also, can I just say, and I know I'm a broken record here. When did Shaky Cam become the de rigueur of this era? What happened in 2008 that Shaky Cam is considered serious? Can you just set up a fucking camera somewhere? Not, it's so, oh God, I'm watching The Magicians too, which, okay. Um, Nothing makes your product look like it was filmed in Toronto like a shaky cam. You know, put in a sepia tone and we are Tumblr girls. Enough is enough. Anyways, I did feel like that scene in Jessica Jones where she like visits the quadriplegic who's been uh basically whose life has been ruined by um by Purple Man and uh he writes down kill me and Jessica Jones says um I can't kill you. Um God didn't do this, the devil did, and I'm going to kill him. Um, and, and this is my own problem because I, I can't, maybe for stand-up comedians, stand-up comedians, rabbis, and apparently magicians, if you're straight, I can't take you seriously on a stage. If you're a straight man, I'm sorry. I know how ridiculous that sounds, but it's so hard for me to take someone who is uh, prescribing to traditional masculinity seriously. I understand that this person is a queer parent. You know, I get it. He like opens up and stuff. Um, but I, I just can't do it. I cannot fucking do it. Okay. I, when I lived in LA, I went to the Magic Castle. It was horrifying it's all old men who dye their eyebrows smoking cigars um with their girl it it, it was very mel gibson by the way mel gibson's current spouse i don't even know if they're married was in my graduating class at emerson um magic generally and pranks are not for queer people the idea of magic and of pranks is that you are like used to the comfort of the world you know and <clears throat> we're going to like flip it on you um queer people already live in hell like they live in the ground floor of awareness um that nothing is real so i don't need a trick played on me um mr patrick harris okay um the only time it's okay is on jackass because First of all, Jackass is like the greatest homoerotica ever created. And secondly, Jackass is like the joke's on them. Like they're getting fucked up. Um, oh God, Johnny Knoxville in that in that John Waters movie, A Dirty Shame, is so hot. I just found it very, I found him to be affected and I really don't. The shots of the audience like being astounded were so cruel and it it made me miss the Chelsea Peretti Netflix stand-up special, which is the greatest stand-up special of all time. She should have six more, by the way, um, in which she inserted herself into the audience. Like, that's the only way to do it. It was just pure punishment. But it's good to watch something that really pisses you off because sometimes I was in a horrible, I was totally triggered when I sat down to watch that. And the ire I felt uh, helped me connect to my my power. So 
I'm grateful for that. Um, I watched The Last Days of Disco, which is a 1998 uh, independent film starring um, Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale and about 10, <laughs> 10 late 90s post-Ethan Hawke actors who you will not be able to tell apart. It is literally like Digger Styles from Gilmore Girls. Like we're talking that. Um, it's, it, it was a wild movie. Like, first of all, they spent the whole budget on the soundtrack and I celebrate that. Thank you. That movie could never be made now because along with Lena Dunham's Girls and probably a few Nicole Holof Center movies, it is the only satire of the bourgeois that I have ever seen. Uh, and it's done well. So it is not... It is not a, a lampoon of the uber-wealthy elite, and it is not about, like, young hip artists. It is about the bourgeois gentry who have come to um, um, invade New York City and cleanse it of culture without even realizing it because they're so self-involved. They're all Hampshire graduates. I mean, it's incredible. Um, it, it was really something... I love, I, I, you know, I would love a luminaries uh, archaeologist to chime in on this, but Chloe Sevigny in, the, in that era did that and American Psycho. So she was the girl for doing movies filmed in the 90s, set in the 80s, one. And then Kate Beckinsale, you know, I think people don't know what to do with Kate, Kate Beckinsale she, to me, has a bit of a Michelle Pfeiffer thing, which is she absolutely slays and absolutely smashes every part she's given. But people don't know because she's so shockingly beautiful. I think people don't know what her like her gig is. Um, and I think like Michelle Pfeiffer, she makes good choices. So it makes it even harder. You know, someone like Julia Roberts or Meryl Streep don't always make good choices. So it doesn't. You just throw them in shit. Um, Kate Beckinsale, I just saw Underworld for the very first time. She is so snatched out of her goddamn mind. The fact that she was doing that work in those outfits during the first and second term of, of President George Bush and even during a Trump presidency. Okay. Um... But Kate Beckinsale, of course, is in Cold Comfort Farm, one of my all-time favorite books by Stella Gibbons, and the movie is excellent. And she is so good at playing like a young, snide kind of society girl. Um, this movie is one of two, there might be more that I don't know of, but one of two collaborations between her and Chloe, Chloe Sevigny. Of course, we're talking Love and Friendship, the Jane Austen adaptation. What makes this relationship work? We have a Leo and a Scorpio. We have two fixed signs. Kate Beckinsale is a Leo. Um, Chloe Sevigny, of course, is a Scorpio. Two fixed signs. There's just, there's just a sense that um, just give them the material. They got it. Um, Kate Beckinsale understands that she's kind of the 
it's an above below thing. So Kate Beckinsale, uh, Leo is ruled by the sun. Scorpio is ruled by uh, Pluto. I mean, it's also ruled by Mars. But if we think of the sun and Pluto, of course, I have a sun-Pluto opposition, which uh, is currently destroying my life. But I'm so grateful for all the lessons it brings my way. Uh, the sun, of course, is above ground. Pluto is the underworld. Uh, if we think of Leo as this kind of above ground, the solar energy, and Pluto as this below ground, mysterious um kind of gems to be discovered energy kate beckinsale is really able to give you that solar light while chloe Sevigny is of course um and especially in this movie she's she's alluring she's she's bizarre she's mysterious in the way that scarlett uh, as my stepmother calls her scarlett johansson used to be in the kind of ghost world era where it's like who is that girl of course Unfortunately, um, Scarlett Johansson is now married to Colin Jost, so you know there's not not much allure left. But um, I do want to celebrate Chloe Sevigny um, for naming her son Vanya, her 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 child, and for playing a, a military, a lesbian, not a militant lesbian, a lesbian in the military on We Are We Are Who We Are. If you didn't like We Are Who We Are, like. Can, do people believe in love? I, I'm just like, I'm at this point where I'm just like, do you believe? Do you believe in love? Okay, that's the question. Um, what does Lily Tomlin say to to uh, Jason Schwartzman in I Heart Huckabees? Do you even believe in authentic love? Okay. Um, anyways, the last day of, days of disco was, was very interesting. I, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it. Um, listen, let's just say it. The David Boreanaz jerk off video is out. Uh, I thought that when I finished Angel last week, uh, I would be running out of content on that, uh, universe, but it, it is the gift that keeps on giving. And I gotta tell you, he really satisfies. Um, I hate to be one of these people, but like, David Boreanaz is a sexual cornerstone for me and probably the many people listening. Um, and he really satisfies. Uh, the The video explains his career longevity, if you ask me. I am not watching the Woody Allen documentary. Um, listen, I am in a 12-step program. I do IFS. I'm in therapy. I am recovering from my own childhood sexual trauma, as you know. Um, it, this is a childhood sexual trauma is, uh, part of a larger cultural, uh, system and, uh, it is not something that you can put through the Hollywood, uh, monolithic star exercise. I, I, I don't need to see it. Okay. I, I'm not saying I don't believe anyone. I don't need to watch it. Okay. Um, of course, New York City is in peril because Emperor Cuomo has made such lovely decisions and apparently we might be, by 2022, losing several lines of the train. And, like, they've already shut down public schools. So we're going into full Reagan hell world. Um, I'm, You know, this summer, for five seconds, I subscribed to Vanity Fair, which is the world's worst magazine. And they did, like, a puff piece on Cuomo. It was humiliating. Fuck him. Tax the rich. Okay. Um, 
the other thing is we know that uh, just, you know, because this is a news podcast. Um, I was just thinking, you know, we just got the Congress just passed and, it, and now it needs to go to the Senate. A massive uh, LGBTQ rights bill, which is basically an amendment to the civil rights bill, uh, giving protection to queer people. However, as we know, the Senate is tied uh, 50-50 and we need 10 Republicans Okay, we need 10 Republicans to vote for this. And you know what I'm going to think of. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city for for lack of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him. What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy them. Destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. So, this is not even a call for righteousness from these ten Republican just sardines, okay? We need 10 Republicans and 50 Democrats to show base human compassion. Not righteousness, base morality, okay? And I'm just going to go out there and say I believe it's possible. I do, and I am going to be optimistic. I don't want to be negative, and I, not negative. I don't I don't need to, um, I don't need to indulge, you know, and, and I, I do want to believe that change is possible. And I, I can see that, uh, despite the airstrikes in Syria, our president is trying. And I do believe what Marianne Williams says, which is if we don't see real change in the first hundred days, it's over forever for the Democrats. Um, and maybe it should be, I was just talking with, Recent guest Layla Halabian about the impending Pluto, America's Pluto return in Capricorn, which is impending. And, you know, shit is going to go down. But I, I, I do believe I want to be optimistic. Um, I think it's worth it's worth something to be optimistic. The last thing I'll say, I am going through a Steps renaissance. Steps is incredible. Um I always thought like it was just their old stuff, but actually their new stuff is a fucking tear. Uh, one for sorrow, obviously, but um, what is it? Scared of the dark? Hold on. Anyways, um, we have a very good episode. We have um, Samantha Stallard, my beloved friend, a longtime listener of, of the pod, a uh, great mind joining me to discuss Nora Ephron, um, and, which we will get into. If Nora Ephron's very handsome son is listening, please DM me. 
And um, I will see you in a brighter tomorrow um, for which I have faith. Mwah. Okay, welcome to the Luminaries. We are covering the astrology of the legendary Nora Ephron. With me, I have uh, my dear friend, fellow writer, um, and uh, I would consider an F for an an. I was going to say an expert on things Nora Ephron and Effort came out. So an expert on all things Ephron, Samantha Stallard. I'm so grateful to have you here. Finally, it's taken so goddamn long to get you on this podcast. My dear, dear David, I've been a fan since day one. I'm That's so excited true. to be here. I am an effort. You are right. But yes. An Ephron expert. Um, <laughs> Nora and Zach. So whichever direction this podcast goes, I'm ready. Yes. So actually, God, well, actually, can I just say I was thinking about Zach Efron last night because as I was doing my Nora Efron research, I was looking at scenes from Silkwood and look, mm-hmm. I just think that Kurt Russell, like they broke the mold with that one and it's just not going to get much better. And when I look at him, I'm like, okay, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. And then you know, as I was looking at the scenes of Kurt Russell in bed with Meryl Streep, I was like, you know, not to say that things were better in the old days, but like I, I did compare Kurt Russell to Zac Efron and I was like, wow, things have really descended. You know, the standard has has right. descended. I, I agree. And I mean, that was back when a man could be both muscular, hairy and tall, which mm. can no longer be done. You, you can only get two. You only now. get two. You only get <laughs> two. And so he, we broke the mold with that one. And I completely agree. That's also back when talk, toxic masculinity was sky high. And so overboard, <laughs> oh, you might say. <laughs> So I think that that really helped that rough and tumble persona because it was like, no one can think I'm gay. That was oh, that God. was like a healthy fear in straight men, you know? I have a lot I could go on about Zac Efron. That'll be another episode about his gender presentation. And yes, I am not saying that I like celebrate the film Overboard and that version of Kurt Russell. I'm just saying like he he's aged very well. Okay. Listen, and listen. good for Goldie Hawn for locking that oh, down. Good for, good for him for getting Goldie Hawn. That's that's the real story. And yeah. we all have our secrets. Mine is Woody Allen movies. So <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> Are you watching that documentary? I am. It okay. is nothing I didn't already know. Yeah. However, to be presented all those disgusting facts in a row will really fire a person up i i'm not gonna do it i just don't do it yeah. don't do it you know that you know you know you know you know exactly and <laughs> and um you know I, I don't sleep as it is like i i okay right. i get it okay exactly. um so with nora efron before we really get cracking i'd love to hear your story with her your experience with her um Etc. So I, as a child going to Blockbuster. Mm. As all great stories begin. As all great stories beginning. Found myself continuously going back to Sleepless in Seattle. Mm. And to be eight and to find a movie written for 30-year-old women like 
your calling is a very unique place to be in. And so it began by just me mainlining Sleepless in Seattle. And then I discovered when Harry met Sally at, again, a far too young age. (laughs) And I remember thinking, there's no way you have sex with this many people in your life. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And then when You've Got Mail came out, it was over for you, hoes. I, that is remains one of my favorite movies I was so enchanted by it and I just I fell I fell for this woman's view of love and just the way she presented mm. it and then in college I started reading her essays and really really just never got out of that rabbit hole ever I mean mm. I was reading I feel bad about my neck at 22 so this, <laughs> this really set up the trajectory for my adulthood. And I just, her writing, it's like she wrote it once, pressed send and walked away. I mean, it feels like however long it took you to read one of her essays is how long it take her to wrote, write it. We, which we're going to get into the immediacy aspect because I think that is very critical, but sorry, continue. It's, I just, I... I never read a writer that seemed more effortless and descriptive. And I just thought she was, she had the life I wanted. Here she is, this cosmopolitan woman living in New York, hosting dinner parties with the literary elite. I was just like, holy shit, this is my destiny. This is all I want in the world. And here this woman is living my fantasy and I, I must consume everything she's ever done. And I will say, while I have met her son, which I'm sure we'll get into, I yes. I never <laughs> I never got the chance to meet Nora. And I think that is correct. I think it's for the best. It's absolutely um, for the best. Yeah. It 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 would not there's no way for you to explain to someone like her. The right. impact she's having without you coming off as cloying and saturine, which would have repulsed her. Exactly. Exactly. She would have broken my heart. And I'm fully <laughs> aware of that because I'm also the type of person which makes our friends want to liquefy and die is that if I see a celebrity, I'm going to go talk to them. <laughs> so I saved all of us a lot of lot of turmoil by never getting the chance to meet her. So... <laughs> So we are going to set the kind of stage for this reading. Um, uh, This is basically, you know, reader beware. Mm -hmm. We do not have Nora Ephron's birth time. We have her birthday and location, which means to say we have um, the planetary sign placements and the aspects we don't have the house placements we don't have her rising sign so we are missing her rising sign and we're missing the house information we have plenty to work with just based on the planets and the signs themselves and she had a stellium so it kind of makes a lot of the work easier for us but i do want to to your credit sam um as a great investigative journalist i know that you uh for the sake of this podcast reached out to her son her hot son, uh, Jacob Bernstein, to see if we could get a birth time. Um, and I'd love to know if you could share his response. Yeah, so as I am wont to do, I DM'd my good friend, Jacob Bernstein, <laughs> who I've met in person one time. And 
was like, hey, Jacob, you probably don't know this. What time was your mom born? I'm doing an astrology podcast on her. And he responded with, not only do I not know what time she was born, the only thing that she hated more than religion was astrology. (laughs) Don't do it. And I said, I will. (laughs) Okay. I'm so glad she feels that way. It feels very on brand, but like, thank you, Jacob. (laughs) So with that said, you know, before this reading, I did call on, I called on Nora to be with us and I am, I'm just wanting to clarify. Um, (laughs) Sam and I are doing this reading to kind of better explore and understand the, uh, the immortal legacy of this person as an artist and a creator and a personality. Um, So we are not, we want to do this in the highest service to her and to people who loved her and to her fans. Um, I love that she would hate this. I kind of think it's a part of me is like, I I feel like she would be in on the joke of this a bit. Um, So I just want to put that out there. Um, And we're just going to be kind of exploring her history through her astrology. Um, We are not meant to be like, exposing dark secrets or anything like that we don't know anything about her besides you know what she has largely put out into the world um and and we're just using astrology to kind of put her work in a bit of context so i just want to put that out there um sam are you ready to get rolling oh my god i've never been more ready for anything here we go okay so Nora Ephron was born May 19th, 1941, which means to say uh, she's the first Taurus we're covering on this podcast. I'm thrilled because I am a Taurus sun. We have Sun, Jupiter, Uranus, Saturn, and Lilith in Taurus. So this is a Taurus dominating chart, let's just say. And um, there's a lot of Taurus in her life, in her persona, uh, and in the way she kind of, what she put out into the world. So I'm just going to kind of lay out the basics of, of Taurus, and I want you to be jumping in and, and, and going off as much as you'd like, Sam. Taurus is the second sign of the Zodiac, okay? So if we think of Aries as the hatching uh baby who is discovering its desires and its impulses and its functions. Taurus is when you're kind of a toddler and you are realizing that you can have things for yourself, which is that's my stuffed animal. That's my food. That's my toy. Taurus um, defines itself by its possessions and its values and its resources. It's, It's about what you have is what you are. Um, Taurus is very much associated with sensuality. Um, Taurus, of course, is ruled by Venus, like Libra. Taurus is, of course, as as I've said many times on this podcast, uh, very much the bull is very much associated with the goddess in, in matrilineal cultures. Of course, the bull's horns represent the fallopian tubes. Uh, bulls tilled the fields, uh, and the bull's horns represent the waxing moon. So. I associate Taurus with this kind of higher authority, with this kind of higher divine feminine, which can be a a strong power. It's not so much the Venus of softness. um, It is the Venus of strength and authority that I see. Taurus is a fixed sign. Um, It's very rooted. The bull is in its kind of 
not its den, but its lair. So it's very uh, set and su- stubborn and strong. Um, how is any of this feeling to you? It's so exactly who she is. I mean, Nora was Machiavellian in her <laughs> style. <laughs> she was both loved and feared, completely stuck in her ways and unwilling to change. I mean, she wrote an entire essay about her idiot first husband, which, you know, if you read it, is more about how she was unwilling to come to any sort of compromise with this seemingly nice man. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she just, the, the problem I think for her, well, not the problem, but she was most often right. And so when you are controlling, but also right, people fall in line. Right, which is very Taurus, which is just like, Taurus is yes, stubborn, but Taurus is also just like, you're not going to tell me. Like, exactly, right. I know that what I'm doing is right. And like, what? Yeah, exactly. Who are you talking to? And, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of women in publishing and in Hollywood and just in this profile, when we think about their careers, it's these careers that have often been hijacked and dominated by men. Um, and women who didn't get a fair shot, uh, you know, they, they got their career destroyed, blah, blah, blah. She's one where this Taurus aspect, and I'm not saying that like the other women because of their astrology, like tough shit. I, I'm not saying that, I'm just saying, she is someone who I think is is uh, notable and a role model for a lot of people because her career from the start to the end was very much her own on her terms and you know by her rules. Um, she never really was anyone else's product. And that, what's so interesting about that is her parents were screenwriters, and mm. she talked a lot about how um, there. There was this understanding in her household that her sisters, she has three sisters, that they would they would be writers. And she said what initially made her not want to be a screenwriter is the only women screenwriters she saw were partners with their husband. Mm. So it was as if first you had to get a husband and then you were allowed to be a writer. And she was mm. very much like, fuck that. I'm going to be a journalist because I'm not going to order my life priorities of husband than writing. You know, it's interesting. Um, If we think about the way the Zodiac is broken up, we have Aries through Virgo are the kind of personal signs. They deal with the self. Uh, Libra through Pisces are the relational signs. Mm -hmm. Um, She has a lot going on in Pisces, but beyond that, she has nothing in the other relational signs. Everything is going on from the kind of Taurus through Virgo arena. So for her, her chart is very much defined by the relaying of personal experiences. The only time that that doesn't, you know, then we jump straight to Pisces, which is this hyper, hyper, hyper universalistic. So there is just this interesting aspect of everything needing to be claimed by her and relayed through her own experiences, which then of course gets transmuted into this very cinematic Pisces vision. But I think, um, it had to be extremely personal for her and it couldn't really be, obviously she had these great collaborators, Mike Nichols, et cetera, et cetera. But 
um, in terms of the actual work, it really has to be from her point of view. Um, we have Venus and Mercury in Gemini. Of course, Gemini is all about the relaying of the personal experience. Uh, Venus is kind of her artistry and her beauty. Mercury is her communication. So um, Gemini is very immediate. Uh, Gemini is not... Gemini, and we'll get into this with heartburn, Gemini is not really so much about wisdom or knowledge. It's about the present experience and relaying it. So I think for her, it's very much these kind of immediacy of feelings, which is why, again, I mean, uh, I loved what you were saying about when you read her essays. It's like, this could have just been done in one draft because it's so like right out of her mind it's so raw it's so immediate and to me that's where a lot of the gemini comes through which is often that though that aspect can be a lack of refinement it's actually not in her case she has this great uh she has that saturn in taurus which gives this very thought out um hyper structured form but the artistry comes out through the immediacy of relate experiences which Again, we'll get into heartburn, which is, I just went through this. I'm going to talk about it. And I think she's one of the early, or really one of the, I, I would say like our generation, everyone wants to be an essayist, but I really think she kind of launched that in a lot of ways. Oh, completely. I mean, she wrote about having small tits for GQ. Yeah. way before anyone was remotely talking about themselves in that particular way for a men's magazine. I mean, it, she blew people's minds by just coming in and being like, I'm going to talk about me because that's what I know. And I'm the authority on me. And, you know, as her mother said, <laughs> everything is copy. And mm. that's what she was taught to believe was Every experience you go through is a story to tell later to control the narrative. Yeah. So I wrote a, I had a few thoughts about that. So we look at the planet Pluto. Pluto goes in very, very, very long cycles. It's kind of a gen Pluto and Neptune. We're going to talk about yet yeah, classically. <laughs> um, she's at the start of the Pluto Leo generation. What does that mean? Um, to me, I think of the Pluto Leo generation as this, these children who were born uh, during world, you know, post depression during World War II and after, whose parents may have truly believed that you could live like an as an idealized American, which is this very like Ike Eisenhower fantasy of like kind of a Don Draper, Betty Draper, and the Pluto and Leo generation as they grew older, kind of experienced Pluto death. Leo, the kind of uh, egocentric presentation of self, kind of realized uh, that's not possible, which then, of course, leads into the 70s, the me decade and the kind of uh, rise of psychotherapy and, and the, um, the, the rise of, again, Woody Allen and, and the neurotic. To me, she's one of the originators of that gen generation, which is basically saying, like, I can't present myself as perfect. That's just not what it's not possible. I can't like, 
and it's interesting because when we look at the the films her parents did, which were great, but you know, her parents were doing like writing screenplays for like a Marilyn Monroe movie, which were of course so clever and so tongue in cheek, but it's also from this, it's a different era of Hollywood. And I think Nora Ephron uh, led us into a new era, which is this era of kind of the imperfect self on display, which of course leads into, you know, who is the actor she's most associated with, Tom Hanks, who is so, you know, he's associated as this kind of non-sexy, non-perfect, like, man-child. Totally. And, I mean, we don't know him in any other form but that. And I think this was, she was also leading the revolution of, oh, I don't have to be miserable because her, her parents were very much in that group of people where it's like you turn 18 you get married too bad and he was the the children of those grown-ups who basically was like I don't I don't have to be unhappy actually and I don't have to be with a person or in a situation that makes me unhappy and I can be uncomfortable for a minute to make myself better tomorrow and she was really willing to open the floodgates and show everyone the messiness sometimes too quickly. I mean, I know we keep alluding to heartburn, but like homegirl could have taken a beat and processed some stuff before she wrote a book. But <laughs> <laughs> Yes. But we have a lot to say there. We um, really, really do. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that I, I want to say that's interesting is, so like like we said, she she's born at the beginning. She's one of the original Pluto and Leos. She's born at the tail end of Neptune and Virgo. So again, Neptune, uh, which is the planet of the imagination, the kind of communal subconscious, uh, dreams, deception, which we'll get into. Um, Neptune moves very slowly, so that's also a generational planet. Neptune in Virgo, she's born at the tail end, which then leads to the, after Neptune's in Virgo, we have the Neptune in Libra generation, which are of course the baby boomers. So that's 1942 through uh, 1956. Libra is the sign of relationships. And I think the Neptune in Libra, generation who are baby boomers may have um, adopted or chosen to believe in certain marriage values um, or certain uh, kind of fantasies of marriage, which of course the Gen Xers who are Pluto and Libra would come and tear down. But essentially what I mean to say with this is she has Neptune and Virgo. Virgo is very much the sign of the body. It's the sign of breaking things down. It's the sign of kind of analysis and synthesization. She has Neptune and she has her North node, which is the kind of highest point of consciousness, the, the, uh, the high point of the moon's elliptical in Virgo. So there's this idea that as this, um, this Neptune in Libra generation is coming up, which is this generation that maybe has a fantasy about relationships and about love and marriage and about happy endings. We have this kind of last warrior from the Neptune Virgo generation who's like, wait a minute, I want to break this Virgo. I want to break this this down, break this fantasy down through my personal experiences. Um, and, and she actually does love the, the fantasy of, of romance, but... There is this aspect of like 
she doesn't want anyone to believe like you just fall in love you get married and it's ganug she's kind of from this virgo point of view is like wait a minute we need to think about this and talk about this which i love that that comes right before this libra neptune generation and she's kind of there to like wake them up a little bit and shock them completely and i think that her three marriages reflect that so much because you know her first marriage nice guy bordered to death Second one, <laughs> Carl Bernstein, notorious Oof. fuck boy, who she was just like intellectually attracted to on like a cosmic level, who destroyed her as she knew he would. Uh, but she kept tra- chasing the dream. She had this mindset of, I believe in true love. I just mm. haven't found it yet. And I am going to tear through New York City until I meet the man that is my true love. And she yeah. did. um yeah which she did with uh uh, nicholas uh uh, nicholas sorry his name okay right uh nicholas piaggi okay so yeah let's talk about the idea of true love because we'll get into her pisces we'll get into her taurus which is very realistic but critically she has her south node so her kind of um you know, what she comes from, her Mars, which is the idea of the masculine male sexuality, sorry, uh, her kind of fire, her individuality, her her maybe ideals of what a man is. Mm -hmm. And then her moon, her moon is her feminine, her desires, kind of uh, where she gets her sense of safety and security. It's kind of her soul. All three of these are in Pisces. Taurus is a very practical sign. It's very uh, steady and pragmatic. Pisces is the sign of the cinematic. It is the grand. Um, it, it is the grand imagination. Um, Pisces is the dreamer. Pisces is very Claire Fisher. Pisces is very artistic. It's very poetic. Um, Pisces is a mutable sign. It goes with the flow. It's very sensitive. So. It's interesting that we see her moon in Pisces because when I look at that moon there, I'm like, okay, you know, despite this idea of her as this kind of tough talker, uh, as this, this kind of hard realist, as we see with her movies, she actually did really believe in true love and aspire to it. Um, and it's, it's like kind of her, it's always going to be there for her, this idea, even if, even if she's disappointed in life, like I, I think there's a comfort to her, which she understood for a lot of women, that even if movies aren't realistic, they can give us this fantasy that can be healing. What do you think about that? Totally. And I mean, she's even been quoted as saying, we don't care about love. We care about love in movies. And mm. that's just so true. Real love is boring and comfortable and predictable movie love is exciting and toxic and invigorating and you know she i saw an interview with her once where they were talking about sleepless in seattle and she was like listen this story isn't real no one's gonna meet this way (laughs) ridiculous 
she if if a woman tried to meet a man by hiring a pi and chasing him across the country she'd be put in jail and (laughs) (laughs) it's just like she's like everyone lighten up it's a movie and i just love that attitude because i mean that's how we all learned about love was through movies we certainly didn't see it at home (laughs) and it's interesting with julia and julie and julia there's that interview where she's like I want to put out a movie that that uh, like affirms the idea that a man can actually be supportive of his wife and that that isn't such a fucking ridiculous concept, you know? So there's this idea where she's like, no, like these fantasies are supposed to be good. Mm -hmm. When he says, when Stanley Tucci, sexiest man alive, (laughs) you are the, the butter to my bread and the breath to my life. I love you, darling girl. Oh my God, mm. kill me, kill me. That's that's what we all want. Yeah, so this is what's interesting. She has her Neptune and her North Node in Virgo, uh, opposing her moon in Pisces. So an opposition is a 180 degree angle. It's kind of, it can be a conflict and it can be a dialogue. I love an opposition. Um, it's the only opposition in her chart. Um, if we think of Virgo and Pisces, I've said this a hundred times, of course, Virgo is the attainment of self-definition through service. Pisces is losing oneself through service. So we think of this Pisces moon, which is, I want to lose myself in another. I want to lose myself in love. I want to lose myself in this fantasy. Then we get this Neptune and North node in Virgo, which is very much um, my kind of artistic output and the way that I am uh, connecting with others is through this hyper-personal uh, breaking down of experience and through synthesizing and through my own body, through my own love life. So to me, I, I wrote this quote down, a moon-Neptune opposition, uh, I wrote this Alan Oaken quote down, is quote, the deceived. It's basically like you're kind of a a fool for love. And especially when we see it in Neptune versus Pisces, there's this idea of like this risk and this fear of betraying your own point of view and letting go of the grip uh, by giving into love, which, you know, we saw played out in her own life. And of course, by the way, she was right to do it because she did, of course, find great love um, and feel very supportive and very affirmed. So it's not to say that she was like doomed to be a fool for love, but it's this dynamic that really plays out in this idea of a battle between this hyper-defined self and this kind of fantasy and this kind of reconciliation that has to happen between the two of them. And she was a fool for love, but she also always did what was best for herself so she would let herself fall but then she would also be the one to pick up the pieces i mean she was she had a one-year-old and was seven months pregnant when she found out that her husband was having an affair and it was just instantly like i'm leaving you i'm leaving dc (laughs) i'm leaving our entire life i'm going to go have this baby alone and you can fuck all the way off and then i'm gonna write a book about it so she she let herself to be her herself be sucked in, but then I think she was the first one to pull herself out of it and be like, "Okay, wake up, what's going <laughs> on? <laughs> we gotta go." Yeah. So let's talk about Taurus. Um, we have we have the sun. 
you know, kind of how she's seen her expression, her vitality. Anyone who listens to to this podcast knows that I love Taurus women. We're talking. Cher, Christine Baranski, Kate Blanchett, Tina Fey, Lena Dunham. um, Who else? Janet Jackson, Grace Jones, Billie Holiday, um, Barbara Streisand, Adele. The list like truly goes on Taurus women it's just like you're not gonna fucking tell me what to do period. oh my god born to be a star so when Barbara Streisand says I have stage fright I don't want to perform for 27 years you're not gonna fuck with her okay exactly. so she's a Taurus great she's Taurus son Taurus Jupiter conjunct her son Jupiter is the planet of um you know, Jupiter is Zeus. Jupiter is a, a very collegiate sign. Jupiter is the planet of kind of philosophical expansion. So, you know, Jupiter is there with her son. And then we also have Uranus conjunct her son. Uh, Uranus is the queer planet, the planet of uh, higher consciousness. It's the planet of kind of ripping the straitjacket off. Um, I quite love that placement because um, Uranus and her son... Uh, there's this aspect of these kind of flashes of genius and and kind of uh, serving this role as this kind of um, uh, with with Uranus and, and the sun kind of on an intellectual level, kind of awakening others to their higher potential. And then I this is just my theory. A Pisces moon is extremely powerful. Um, I, I call the Pisces moon the revelator just because who has a Pisces moon? Timothy Chalamet. Leonardo da Vinci, Martin Luther King, J.R.R. Tolkien, Kim Jong-un, Che Guevara, The Ataturk, Elvis, Edgar Allan Poe, so uh, uh, Michelle Obama. So for good or evil, a Pisces moon is very like it, it awakens people. It, it kind of like brings people to a higher level. Um, so there's just this idea of um, she off the jump um, on an intellectual with that Jupiter on an intellectual kind of philosophical level. And the Taurus Taurus is very much about the personal experience. And we know that she has that Venus in Gemini. So off the jump, um, she's able to kind of transmit these experiences into these revelatory um, philosophical um, kind of treatises, which, which we get a lot of obviously with, when Harry met Sally, because Harry met Sally in a lot of ways is, I would say, see, Sally is kind of her Pisces moon and Harry is this strong Jupiter, um, which is kind of this, this philosophical Jupiter and Taurus, which is this very philosophical, hyper pragmatic Harry. Uh, And then this Pisces moon, which is Sally, which is like, why can't we just have like, full love why can't we give each other you know i see when harry met sally as this kind of inner battle within her what do you think about that oh completely completely i mean she is both of them she is harry saying how long do you like to be held after sex all night right see that's your problem somewhere between 30 seconds and all night is your problem and then sally taking 30 minutes to order a salad so she takes on both of those personas completely and and what I love about her, she doesn't hide it. She doesn't, she doesn't try and pretend that she's, you know, this, this tough exterior that while she is, she's also the first one to admit like, yeah, I think love is beautiful. I am very sensitive. I just want to be held sometimes. And 
we are we are complicated beings capable of holding both of those spaces at the same time. And I think she was really one of the trailblazers to to show that off to say, I can both, you know, have my wildest sex fantasy being a faceless stranger ripping my clothes off and that's it. That's where it ends. And then also just want to be tragically alone, but so I don't hurt anyone or get hurt by anyone. So yeah, talking to you now, I'm realizing I think what's really essential with her is that she's not a cynic. No. Um, which I think when you watch a lot of romantic comedies, they're clearly made by people who don't believe it, mm -hmm. who are cynics, who are really bitter and who are doing this because it's a machine, but who actually resent the whole idea. Oh, totally. I mean, because her movies end with love, all of them, yeah. and not in a, well, yes, in a cheesy way, but she, Extremely. she knows that and does right. not give a shit. She's like, I'm feeding you exactly what the nourishment you need. I'm taking right. care of you by providing this ending. Right. Um, so the other essential planet that we have in Taurus is Saturn. Saturn is the father, the daddy. Saturn is rules, structure, restriction. Um, Saturn in Taurus is the boss, okay? Taurus, you got a fixed sign. Taurus knows what works, what doesn't work, especially aesthetically. Taurus uh, is very pragmatic. Saturn is very much the planet, and her Saturn is in a nice trine with her moon, which gives a lot of common sense. So Saturn is like, this is what works, this is what doesn't, this is what's efficient, this is what isn't. Classically, you know, we have uh, the producers, there's the famous line that when she died, uh, one of her co-producers said to Mike Nichols, no, the, Mike Nichols said to her co-producer, who's going to tell us what to do? Yeah. And she did have an aspect, uh, kind of, I think, endearingly of like, she was not, um, she was not here to, to waste time. And you know, iconically, she did fire the child, the first child they cast in sleeping in sleepless uh, with Seattle. What is it called? Sleepless in Seattle. There you go. <laughs> sleeping in Seattle. Is sleeping the... with Seattle. <laughs> I, listen, it all works. Yeah. She, okay. She fired a child and like apparently shocked Tom Hanks. He was like, in what world do you do that? <laughs> and she, and right. And her Saturn and Taurus is like, babe, get real. Okay. Yeah, get over it. We'll be fine. <laughs> I, I I love that she was in charge of everything and everyone yeah. who worked with her just knew to fall in line. And because once again, she was usually right. Yeah. Um, and I love, I love in the documentary, there's all of these comedians who are like, oh yeah, I love how Steven Spielberg is like, I could only make her laugh like three times and I was so proud of myself. Steven Spielberg has that line where he's like, making her laugh was better than winning an Oscar, which is so Taurus of just like, I'm not gonna give you a fake laugh right. if you don't deserve it. Right, exactly. You, you know? know? Right, that I, that would teach you nothing. You wouldn't <laughs> grow and be better if I gave you a fake laugh. You have to earn it. And I, you know, to that extent, uh, Saturn in Taurus is very much high standards and, and high expectations. And I think that's what, that's what put a lot of these pieces together, which is like, who are her collaborators, you know, and 
how did she get so much done was yes there's this idea of her as a hard ass but also she just had high standards and like that's not a moral issue that's just kind of what's that's who she is you know and that's what gets things done oh completely and she was nothing if not efficient so that's she got she got things done yes so let's talk about okay well I also, I, I would love if you could read this quote about uh, The Last Meal, because okay. it's so, um, it's just like the most tourist thing I've ever heard. And then I also want to hear about the Apthorpe from you. Oh, yes. Okay. So here's, here's a line from Nora. It's very important to eat your last meal before it actually comes up. When you are actually going to have your last meal, you'll either be too sick to have it or you aren't going to know it's your last meal and you could squander it on something like a tuna melt and that would be ironic so it's important i feel it's important to have that last meal today tomorrow soon okay so again <laughs> this is what i love about being a taurus and you know i thank god every day sorry i'm not going to insult <laughs> the many capricorns in my life who i value a lot okay? we all need capricorns in our life Yes. And <laughs> Sam and I are of a generation where we have Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune in Capricorn. There's a lot of valuable lessons there. But what's great about a Taurus is they're going to make the money, they're going to work hard for it, and then they're going to enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Um, and obviously, like her most iconic scene, of course, is when Harry met Sally, which is in a diner. Like, there's just this aspect of like the food and the sensuality. And this idea of like, yeah, you should enjoy life. Like you should not be miserable um, that I think really carried through. And I also think like, if you think of a woman like this in Hollywood, especially at this, in this era, but honestly in any era, I hate, I hate, I do not like to speak as if we've progressed so far. I think that she really did this amazing, um, this amazing thing of like, yeah, I'm not like a battle axe. Like I actually really enjoy life. Like I enjoy nice things. I enjoy being happy. Like I I take great pleasure in what I've done rather than this like she's a stone cold bitch that like I think is is a narrative in Hollywood. Oh, totally. I mean, the woman had a house in the Hamptons that was beautiful where she threw lavish dinner parties for her rich friends and she was like, <laughs> "Yeah, obviously." Why would I, this is the, the dream, what's your problem? And it's, it's funny you bring up the food because Julie and Julia is a love letter to food. It is a and nothing else. Food. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, and it's, and the, the idea that two women could like enjoy cooking and eating, I, it shouldn't, That's true. Be, it shouldn't be psychotic, but it is because of the society we live in where it's like women are taught to what what did you weigh at 18 that's the goal for the rest of your life and yeah. we're not supposed to talk about the things we enjoy or show any sort of hints that we've ever owed, overeaten in our entire lives and she took 90 minutes and was like this is gonna be about two women cooking with butter no you actually what i what i love about that actually is you know one of my most despised romantic comedy tropes is the woman baker. So if we think about um, Catherine, 
Heigl in that Gerard Butler. No, no, no. Catherine Heigl in the Josh Dumel movie, Life as We Know It. She owns a bakery called Fresh. Then we think of uh, fucking Bridesmaid. Kristen yeah. Wiig is like a baker or something. We never see these women eating, okay? No, no. Nora Ephron movie, they are eating. Like they are enjoying the the sensual experience of dining. Exactly, you know? completely. And and no one is shaming them for it. No one is yes. like, and there are jokes in the movie where it's like, you love to eat, but it's never in a mean-spirited way. It's, right. it's always from a place of, this is a passion of yours. And right. so she just did such a great job of, I think, making women be like, oh yeah, I'm allowed to have these pleasures. I'm allowed to like food no shit i'm allowed to like sex obviously like i i am allowed these things yes so i'd love if you could explain this relationship with the apthorpe oh my god so i <laughs> nora is in love with the upper west side of manhattan and i too am in love with the upper west side of manhattan it is a quite quiet boring neighborhood there's no good food there's no there's nothing to do uh but it's it's just sort of there and <laughs> and it's populated by uh the ancient the ancient jewish women who have oh, not changed absolutely. any aspect of their life in 50 years exactly everyone is i mean i would best describe the neighborhood as curmudgeon and yes. It's so the Apthorpe is a building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on 79th at Columbus. Um, it is a pre-war building. It is, it's sort of got this like gorgeous haunted vibe to it, sort of like the Plaza or Beckingham Beckingham Palace, where you can tell that it's both gorgeous and filthy. <laughs> mm. And so she finds an apartment there after leaving Bernstein and she says she takes 10, 10 steps into the apartment and she says, I will take it. It's just, it's grand. It's gorgeous. The Apthorpe has a beautiful courtyard. It's an entire city block. It is a just monster of a building. And the rent was 1500 a month. It is an eight room, five bedroom apartment that she got in the early eighties. Stop. I know. Uh, <laughs> she has to pay what I believe is called a like a, a key fee, which is when an apartment is being rented by someone, you want that apartment and they're like, okay, fine, write me a check for X amount of money and I'll break my lease or I won't renew my lease. Um, when she did it, it was $24,000 and she was like, oh my God, I don't have $24,000, but I'm going to go to the bank and I'm going to get it. And so she did. And she did what I do classically, which is how do I justify this purchase? Oh, if I mm. live there for 24 years, then that's only $1,000 a year. Mm -hmm. That's fine. I'm, I, I dominate that game. I will. <laughs> If, if I buy these, these shoes, how many, that's like, what? That's like 30 cents a wear. Yeah, yes. I can, I can do that all day long. So I love that. Um, and she lives in this apartment from the early eighties to 2006, like just idealizes this apartment this entire time. She is paying $1,500 a month in rent. Stop. And 
which is so so stupid and she in in 2006 i believe the building goes under new management or it just comes out that this is what she's paying and everyone in new york loses their damn minds because they're like nora efron you multi-millionaire are paying fifteen hundred dollars a month for a five bedroom apartment on the upper west side your children are grown <laughs> and you're living here with your husband like what what yeah and she, and she got pissed which is my favorite part of the story she's like no you can't raise my rent i <laughs> no <laughs> that's not fair and everyone's like nora it is fair and her rent is once it comes out and once the world knows that she's paying fifteen hundred dollars a month uh, her rent is raised to 10 grand and then 12 grand and just con continuously goes up, which she's the tragedy for a Taurus of I, like, wait, let me have nice things. Please don't make me pay for this. Exactly. And she's like, while I know I can't afford this, I, I simply don't want to pay it. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that story of even when the world was coming for her, instead of being like, you're right. I'm sorry. I had a good run. She's like, no, I'm, I'm mad. <laughs> yeah. It, it's also great because she's from the Uranus in Taurus generation. So currently the planet Uranus since August, 2019 and through about, I would say 2026 Uranus is in Taurus. It's the first time it's been there since uh, the time when she was born, which I think of that era of Uranus and Taurus as um fdr uh kind of the creation of welfare um this this kind of bouncing back from the great depression and we're currently going through a uranus taurus moment which is basically um how does the state fail to support us um and how does the idea of uh, american exceptionalism and uh, independent earning, how, what are the limits of that? That's very much, because Taurus is all about your kind of independent values. Uranus is meant to kind of blow that up so that it serves a higher pur purpose. So she would actually be going through her Uranus return, uh, her Uranus return right now. But it's just interesting that she is very much of that kind of um, post-Dust Bowl generation. And she has this very Taurian outlook of like, but I'm like, I don't want to suffer. Like I actually want to, enjoy life you know and like have nice things completely and the thing is she she grew up well off but she grew up in beverly hills and so nice things in beverly hills is a whole different level so right. they had you know a ranch house but she would go to her friends houses who had four stories and a, a film projector room and right. so the even though they were wealthy, she would say, no, we weren't. We didn't, we didn't have a film projector room. And so the standard was never realistic, but I mean, it really isn't in any of us. So. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, let's just talk about um, her Lilith. Well, to, to go with her Uranus, I want to explain the saga of her Uranus opposition and Sam is going to have a lot to say about heartburn here. Um, mm -hmm. Uranus at around uh, age late thirties, kind of early to mid forties, the planet Uranus makes an opposition to its original place in your chart. So planet Uranus makes it halfway through your chart 
from where it was when you were born, and it sets an opposition. So her Uranus op opposition took place from 1975 through 1981, and certainly was raging, I would say, in the latter part of that. So probably in the 1978, 19, 1979 through 1981 period. Um, Uranus was in Scorpio, and we have Uranus opposing, again, Lilith, Saturn, Uranus, her sun and Jupiter. Okay, what does this mean? Uranus is the planet of shakeups. It's the planet, like I said, that kind of fucks your life up by ripping off the straitjacket by anything that you trusted or anything you thought was a given gets ripped away so that you're awoken to higher possibilities. This dynamic went down with Uranus transiting Scorpio and opposing Taurus. So Scorpio and Taurus are uh, opposites. They're two sides of a coin. Scorpio is, is shared resources and Taurus is personal resources. Her Lilith is in Taurus. You know, like I've said before, Lilith is Adam's first wife uh, in the biblical mythology. She gets kicked out, on, out of the Garden of Eden for demanding parody. Lilith is a moment of um, the woman exiled. And uh, the woman's independence being challenged and her having to face the consequences of demanding independence. Yeah. So it's just interesting because, and I want to know your thoughts on this, but the way I read this as this big moment where her her sense of personal belongings and her sense of control which is very Taurus is challenged is in the saga leading up to the publishing of Heartburn which is to say what happened with her and Carl Bernstein uh, and I am not speaking moralistically about either of them I'm just saying by nature of it being a celebrity relationship whatever happened when that relationship ends or dissolves, it does not belong to her. The story belongs to, of course, him, and it belongs to their children, but it also belongs to the media. So there's this idea when we think about Taurus as being defined by what you have, um, her Lilith in Taurus, along with her son, her Saturn, all of the things that give her a sense of self-control over her own narrative during this Uranus opposition are truly being ripped away and there's this idea i think that like the central trauma of this is obviously what's happened but this also idea that your story has now been taken away from you what do you feel about that i mean it's it's like this was written for her that i mean yeah just the way it lines up so perfectly it's so she was married to carl bernstein for about a year before it came out that he was having an affair um, with the wife of whomever in DC. And the she just, she cuts and runs and that's, yeah. that's her prerogative. And that's, you know, not everyone has to fix their marriage. Like I said before, she was very pregnant and I think just felt beyond disrespected and also this attitude of who the fuck are you to do this to me now? And yeah, so she, you know, like I said before, left DC as a place she never liked to go home to New York, the place that she was absolutely in love with and just viciously and powerfully wrote this 
novel, her first piece of fiction, which is, it's loosely fiction, but based on what had happened to her and put it out very quickly. I, I believe it was published by 1983. Yeah. So let's break that down a little bit. Um, she was in her Saturn square. Uh, Saturn was in, um, oh, uh, yeah, I guess it, I'm wondering if the, it's her, yeah, she was a, Saturn was squaring its natal position. It was going through uh, Leo and then Virgo during this period. Um, and yeah, again, Leo is very much the presentation of the self. Um, and Virgo is the breaking down and synthesizing. And just to return, we have this Venus in Gemini and this Mercury in Gemini, which are relaying these experiences as they happen to you in the immediate this is not really um done through like a, a great amount of thinking through uh th this is not a crude wisdom um you know i think about I, I don't know like maggie nelson's astrology but i think about someone like maggie nelson as like she really takes her time she's kind of put putting all these pieces together it's a little bit more um, of a, a large scale chronicle, um, Nora Ephron really during this period, I think there is this fast, fast, fast Venus in Gemini. Um, and it's driven by this very Torian idea of, I am reclaiming this narrative for myself. This belongs to me now. Um, and it's interesting because of course we know that, um, the legal proceedings over the film of Heartburn are one of the most like bizarre celebrity uh, Hollywood negotiations in history because she and Carl Bernstein are negotiating over what the movie depicts about their relationship. And to me, again, nothing is more scorpionic than that. Um, it is so like violating for a Taurus to have to negotiate power in this way and it's so scorpionic of like we are signing contracts saying that this is how you're allowed to talk about me like it, it's just so so it's interesting that time i think is so definitive for her and it brings up a lot of the elements in this chart oh completely and i mean i think the big thing for carl bernstein was i please don't show Jack Nicholson's character in the movie as a bad father. Like that was his like line in the sand. And, you know, it just, the whole thing pissed Nora off. And it's, it's just so fascinating because like you said, to, to have this person trying to come in and, and take a piece of yourself of herself with him. And she just wouldn't allow that to happen and was willing to fight him tooth and nail. She was like, you want to fight? Bitch, let's fight. And didn't back and, down. And yeah, him and I think the larger media landscape. Because oh, um, yeah. I think it was also this idea of like, oh, this story doesn't belong to me. It belongs to everyone. So I am taking it back at all costs. And it's so interesting because when she's, you know, she goes on, on, a tour to promote this book, to promote this movie. And she's being asked very personal questions, obviously. And yes. who was it? I think it was David Letterman she was chatting with. And, and he was like, this is really sad. And she was like, yeah, but it's kind of funny, right? 
And mm. he was like, no, <laughs> not to me. And she was like, well, if you think about it, it's really funny. And yeah, comfortable. I I attribute that kind of to her her Venus Gemini, which is just like I'm gonna fucking put, push the limit. Yeah, like, completely. Like you can't moralize me, baby. Right, exactly. Yeah, I I I kind of want to make you uncomfortable. Kind of like it's me yeah to make you squirm. And you know, okay, Carl Bernstein is an Aquarius. Nora Ephron is a Taurus. Welcome to the 3000th edition of Scenes from My Parents' Divorce because my father is an Aquarius and my mother is a Taurus. And this is just kind of the way it works, which is Taurus and Aquarius are both fixed signs. So like, good luck um, because they're, they're both just like, I am not changing my opinion. Right, right. This will but, only end when one of us dies. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the other aspect is Taurus is hyper-personal. Aquarius is one of the final signs, and Aquarius is very much zoomed out on the larger collective. Obviously, Carl Bernstein is most famous for being part of Woodward and Bernstein. For those of you who don't know about Woodward and Bernstein, I highly recommend the Kirsten Dunst, Michelle Williams film, Dick. Um, but he's Not an Aquarius. Not all the presidents. No, which Nora, <laughs> which Nora Ghost wrote, by the way. But um, he, his type of writing is in service of the like, larger collective it's not I, I think hers is too but it's not personal writing it's it's journalism it's extremely zoomed out if we think of Aquarius as as zoomed out as possible so when she says basically I'm writing a book about our it's fiction but it's about our experience because that's how I communicate obviously he's against it on personal grounds but if we just think of the Aquarian mindset I think it's a little bit confusing because it's like, wait, why would you do that? Like to him, uh, and I, I, I'm not speaking for him, I'm speaking from the Aquarius mind view, this idea of the kind of hyper-personal memoir. And this is why it's kind of hard to pin down a lot of Aquarius, like stand-up comedians, et cetera. They're kind of looking at the entire globe from a much bigger picture that talking about your personal experiences is much more difficult for them. So I think for someone like Bernstein, it's a little bit anathema to what he's about, you know? And I also wonder if that is why he was sort of so taken aback when she left him because mm -hmm. he was like, you cheated on me. And he was like, yeah, but I, that was sex. Oh I still love you. Like just because- <sighs> have a connection to this other person doesn't mean that I don't love you. And she was like, uh, yeah, what? <laughs> Again, I cannot speak to like him uh, and I don't know his full chart. But again, if we think about like Aquarius is so not, it, it's really hard to have those kind of dialogues with an Aquarius because they're just like, I don't know what you mean. Everything's fine because it's hard for them to get so close in that way where Taurus and Gemini are like, get, let's get into it. Like, I want to hash out every single detail. Why aren't you obsessed with me? Et cetera, et cetera. Aquarius is like, 
I Aquarius can't be emotionally available when you summon them like that. They have to like process it in their own way and come back to you. So of course it's going to be a total clash. Oh um, yeah, complete. I, I mean, it's like they were baiting each other that, <laughs> the, I mean, that dynamic between them, the first thing, like, I want to talk about everything that's ever happened and him being like, not now, no. <laughs> 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 which again uh scenes from my parents divorce which is like i can't get a straight answer from anyone because one parent i think talks a bit too much and over embellishes and the other parent gives you nothing okay um so we'll just leave that there um yeah she has uh her mars in pisces is square that venus gemini i kind of love that just because um I mean, obviously Mars and Venus, it's literally the battle of the sexes. Um, so there's that aspect, which I think led to a really good dialogue for her, which is this idea of Mars and Pisces, the cinematic masculinity versus this Gemini and Venus, which is like, okay, well, this is what I've actually experienced. And I love that because you think of her dialogues with rob reiner kind of in the making of their movies together and these kind of constant clashes of like is this what men are really like or not is this what women are really like or not etc totally especially that i mean the the scene which it cat's deli which came about because apparently rob reiner had given nora so many insights about men he said okay well you have to tell me something that we don't know about women and she said women don't women fake orgasms and he said no they no that's never happened to me <laughs> and she was like yeah okay <laughs> yeah um exactly um and mars is also square uh her son uranus and jupiter which i would just i wrote is i describe as the world is not enough there's just this sense of for her, I think the cinematic, I think, yeah, we've established like she did find a lot of like fulfillment, joy and love. So it's not this doomed quest, but there is this idea that there's always more um, and that there could always be more, which I think plays into her standards. And I think it plays into what she was trying to work through in her movies, which to me is an interesting aspect of her, which is. I think where her power is, and we see her North Node in Virgo, we see her Venus in Gemini. I think her power is in the, this is me in my everyday experience. And I think there's a bit of a clash that happens when we bring in the cinematic vision, which is her moon and her Mars and her South Node in Pisces, which are uh, kind of squaring her Venus and squaring her sun, which is her basically saying, well, I can take this experience that I've so I've done so well in my personal writing of explaining the kind of quotidian horror of being alive, and I can transmute it to these characters. And I would think like, listen, no one relates to a Nora Ephron character in terms of no one has those jobs. No one lives that life, obviously, socioeconomically. I mean, and, and we're listen, she's not Nancy Myers. She's a step below. So it's not so bad. But what's interesting about her moon Neptune clash and this kind of Virgo 
Pisces clash is sometimes I think there's more power in the personal storytelling and the cinematic storytelling is more aspirational and there's great power in that. But in terms of tapping into reality, um, that can only be personal and that can only be lived. And I don't think she's able to transmute that to cinema in such a great way. Not in such a great way, but in as a convincing way. I think it does, it serves a different purpose, which is a more uh, fantastical vision. Totally. She's very aware of the medium in which she is creating. And yes. her essays are not her movies. And it, it, there's a very clear distinction there. And she really comes into movie making with the mindset of, as you're saying, this is fantastical. Yeah. No woman hires a private eye and flies to Seattle. That's stupid. And <laughs> in her writing, it is, you know, I'm aging and I feel shitty about it. And everybody talks about how great your 60s are. No, they're, they suck. And it, it's just this very honest truth telling where she can both make you laugh and cry. And it's yeah. It's it's all encompassing and she, yeah, it's she's very, very aware of the type of content she's creating and what its purpose is. Yeah. Um, you know, the last thing that I really want to highlight is her. Well, I would just say, listen, if you have a Pisces moon, you're going to be very sensitive. Mm hmm. And you're going to need to be closed off from people at times just to regain your sense of self. If you have a stellium in Taurus, you're going to be very private. Okay. Which is again, the nightmare for a Taurus stellium person to have their finances outed. And this idea of how much she's paying rent outed is a, it's a bone chilling. It, it's, it's, it could keep you up at night because it's, it's like, wait a minute, why would, Having that exposed is just hell on earth. So her privacy plays in, into her life in a big way, um, which of course we know in the, in the documentary, you know, the circumstances surrounding her death was very, she was very private and she didn't want anyone to know about it, um, which kind of shocked and didn't shock a lot of the people in her life. Completely. She found out she had leukemia in 2006 and told basically no one. She, no one, yeah. And told her children thank god and so and what was so interesting to me was when she was nearing the end of her life knew she was nearing the end of her life and started taking her close friends to lunches mm. and taurus it was her way of saying goodbye without having to say it because she could not come to terms with it. She could she couldn't be the center of attention like that. She couldn't have people feel sorry for her. That was just like disgusting to her. And Pluto and Leo, yeah. yeah exactly. So she she just deflected deflected deflected. Still still clung to those relationships. Still wanted to hold you hold you close, but have you not know why she wants to have that connection. Which I think is very Leo, in, uh, not Leo, Lilith in Taurus, which is like, I don't want to know that you're going to get to write your story about me. 
I'm writing my story about me, period. I don't need to, like, I think for her, the idea, even that there would be us doing this or this documentary about her where people are talking about her, it's a loss of power, which is very hard for for this these tourist placements. It's it's losing her greatest possession is her narrative. Completely. And, you know, when when Jacob said she wouldn't like this, I, I we both know it's in jest. She would she would look at this and she would roll her eyes and she'd be like, you're two talented writers. Go write about something that matters. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but she in in the end, the whole mantra, everything is copy. She couldn't she couldn't write about her illness. It was too real. There was no right. there was no separation she could take. She could write about her divorce because she was on the other side of it. She couldn't mm. write about her illness as she was dying because there there could be no emotional disconnect. The last thing I just want to bring up is that uh, like Sam and I, Nora Ephron has Chiron in Cancer. So Chiron is the asteroid classically named after the uh, Greek centaur um, who taught the, the heroes the healing arts. Chiron represents kind of a, a wound which we are able to transmute into healing for others. Uh, and Chiron Cancer is very much associated, it's like, I think it's an amazing placement, which is just this idea of Cancer really wants to provide and nourish others um, through the lessons of its own wounds. So we in we 1990-ish children have Chiron cancer, but I, I love you made so you had some great ideas about how that kind of played out with younger women uh, writers, right? Totally. I mean, she really took Lena Dunham under her wing toward the end of her life. I believe they met in about 2011 and just sort of adopted her. And I, I don't think it really involved Lena reaching out and being like, please, Nora, pay attention to me. I think Nora saw her talent and saw tiny furniture and was like, oh, come here, babe. Let me, let yeah. me teach you. Let me show you the ways. I see the path you're on. I see what you're doing with HBO. Let me save you a lot of heartache. Let me teach you what it took me years to learn. I mean, everything from how to handle dealing with male producers who think they know better than you to the kind of jacket you need to wear on a night shoot. She just adopted her into her life. Though I think Lena Dunham faced what would be Nora Ephron's worst nightmare, which is like a Twitter world, which is basically oh like you're not in control of your right. narrative anymore. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just so not Nora Ephron who needed that control and that, that total authority. Um, also, of course, yeah, like in the Parker Posey memoir, uh, which I love, you know, there, Parker Posey talks about how Nora Ephron like took a shine to her. And there's that iconic scene, which we always talk about, uh, Sam and I, where Nora Ephron comes up to Parker Posey and just says, Parker, you don't change. You just get older. <laughs> and she just like walks away and Parker's just like devastated. <laughs> and it's just so true. <laughs> you just get more stuck in your ways and you get yeah. more stubborn and you get worse. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that Saturn coming through because she has like a great Saturn, I think, and that's her Saturn just being like, don't, don't like. It's also her telling Parker like, "Babe, give it up. Just release, (laughs) release, let go. It's yeah. This is just who we are. You won't change anyone. Mm. It's fine." Mm. Woof. Um, (laughs) So, Sam, do you have any like closing thoughts that? that are coming to you. I I just, I love her so deeply to reiterate my point. I'm very thankful I never met her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if, if you want to bring Nora into your life, might I recommend um, Wallflower at the Orgy? Start there. Uh, there's mm. so many good essays that you can go into. If you think a book about coming into your 60s isn't for you, let me tell you that at 22, I ate it. <laughs> So it doesn't matter your age, your gender, your sexuality, just the way she writes about common human experience, you will be laughing and crying. And also if you're in the mood to cry, might I recommend one of her last essays, which is uh, Things I'll Miss. It's Mm. just a very quick list of the things that she will miss in life and the things that she won't. And, you know, she won't miss Fox News. She will miss Pi. It sounds so basic, but it will it will rip your heart to shreds. Well, yeah, because it's well-written. Right. Um, so, <laughs> God forbid. Um, Did you know that all you have to do is write things well? <laughs> it's... It, you would be shocked. It. Yeah, it's, it's truly, it does shock me sometimes <laughs> where I'm like, oh, that's what's going on here. Hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Sam, where where can people be following you? Oh my gosh. Please follow me at Sam underscore Stallard on Instagram, SJ Stallard on Twitter. Um, I'm writing a lot for Pop Sugar Dot Catalog right now. I have a new piece coming out about a dog psychic that completely blew my mind. So it, it rocked my world too, I have to say. It really changed me. I mean, I... Today is Monday. Yesterday, I bought my dog um, a healing oil for his root chakra. So that's the kind of person I am. (laughs) (laughs) Again, Nora Efron's ghost is like truly uh, ready to throttle us. Um, But, you know, tattoo, which she would also hate. (laughs) God love it. Um, Yeah. And and I do just want to like, you know, give my gratitude to um, to Nora Ephron, uh, to her loved ones and to those who love her work. Uh, cause I, 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 I do want this to be in service to all of them. Um, and, um, obviously if there was anything in this reading that, uh, sounded inaccurate or you didn't agree with, please reach out. Um, let me know. And, um, I have been David Odyssey. Classically, you can follow me on Instagram at David underscore Odyssey davidodyssey.com is almost ready to launch um you can almost always email me for a reading tarot or astrology at a davidodyssey at gmail.com may i just um, say david's reading for me literally changed the course of my life and i'm not that sounds like hyperbole and it's not it is it changed the direction in which my life is going it has been the most powerful thing that has happened to me in the last five years and i called off a wedding so <laughs> let me just tell you that it is the best money you'll ever spend and you can come for me. I, I'm 
I will say it because this man won't. David is one of the the kindest, smartest, most thought-provoking people you will ever have the courtesy of meeting and he'll change your life and I it's there's nothing left to be said. Uh, again, I just have to reiterate that Laurie Metcalf quote, um, there is no justice, but there is mercy because that is what we can give to each other. So thank you, Sam, for that great kindness you just did me. That's so loving. And uh, yeah, listen to the woman. Damn it. Um, okay, I will see you next Tuesday. Sam, you stay right where you are. Uh, thank you. Moi. The Luminaries is made with love in New York City. Consulting producer Carly Hugendijk. Music by Henry Kapersky, art designed by Greg Kozitek. If you would like to book a reading with me, David Odyssey, you can email me, adavidodyssey at gmail.com, and follow me on Instagram, david underscore odyssey. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe, share, rate, etc. Love you always. See you next week. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 